You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And today, Neil, uh, you're going to introduce us to sort of the 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 groups within machine learning. And and there, there are two sort of big ones that I often hear people talk about, frequentists and Bayesians. Um, tell, what's the difference? Yeah, so this is the Jets versus the Sharks. Oh, no. <laughs> the Montagues versus the Capulets. Someone needs to write that musical. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think a lot of this is overblown. Uh, Bayesians versus frequentists. So I wanted to talk a little bit about this um, dangerous territory, but I was. I want to talk about sort of where this comes from, how it's misunderstood in machine learning, and why it's not such a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I think it was last episode where we were talking a little bit about data science and classical statistics versus machine learning, and these terms come out of or the, the, the tribalism, I, I think, comes out of uh, uh, classical statistics. Mm. Um, and the way in which early statisticians were keen to remove um, uh, subjectivity from analysis. And I, I think most Bayesians, I think well, it's not universally accepted, nothing's ever universally accepted, it seems, um, that Bayesian analysis is a more subjective form of analysis. And... Um, so my understanding of the story is Fisher, leading statistician, actually coined the term Bayesian to describe an approach that was known as inverse probability. Huh. Um, and what he was referring to, so there's a common confusion, which really is a bugbear of mine, that people think if you use Bayes' rule, you're a Bayesian, and that's just utterly untrue. If you use Bayes' rule, you're using maths. <laughs> and and Bayesian is a sort of term that is designed to make something sound like a religion. So it's actually, yeah. and it is, it, that's what so Fisher was trying to do. Is he was referring to, Thomas Bayes wrote this paper in, I think, 1776, published posthumously and edited by a guy called Richard Price, who actually did a lot more. To the, his, his intro to the paper is much more coherent huh. than the paper itself. Interesting. In, well, to a lay reader, yeah. But Bayes, when he does, he, in the paper, he introduces the binomial distribution, which is like coin tossing probability of heads versus tails. And I think it was, I think it's uh, Bernoulli who had introduced this before Bayes and probably independently of Bayes because communication, they didn't have the internet then. Um, they didn't even have canals or trains or anything. They just had horses and satchels. Um, so there was less, you know, there was more sort of information isolation. And Bayes talked about the binomial distribution. And when he describes it, he describes um, that there's, you have a sort of like, I think he describes a billiard table. And he says, you, you throw one ball and it goes randomly between the two sides of the billiard table mm. and it ends up uniformly distributed between the two sides. Mm. And then he says... Now you do the same with another ball, and it ends up either to the left or the right of the first ball. And he says that's the distributional setup. So this is like his what we would call a probabilistic program. Mm-hmm. This is his generative mm-hmm. model for what's going on. So he, he's sampled a parameter from the same distribution that then he samples. Then he says, oh, is greater than. So if it's on the left, that's like heads. Mm-hmm. If it's on the tails, on the right, that's like tails. Gotcha. Um, Whereas um, Bernoulli, I think, described this same setup as picking a ball out of a bag of red and black balls. Hmm. So Bernoulli said, there's red and black balls, and I pick one out, and it's either red or black, and it's proportional to the probability, the number of red and black balls in there. So this is a bag of well-mixed balls. You know. So neither of these things really work. I mean, everyone's interested in balls, though. <laughs> 
So uh, that's, I think they did a lot of games right. They must have just thought about this around games. Right. What if I put all those balls in a bag and pick one out or something? Right. Um, it's seventeen seventy six. There's not a lot going on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, you know, it got dark early. You went inside. I don't know what you did, but, you know. Either you um, have to find another country and start a revolution or you have to, like, play billiards a lot. Yeah, good heavens. There was a revolution somewhere. I can't remember. Minor yeah, revolution. You know, yeah, somewhere. Anyway, I don't even... So now I'm saying 1776. I'm probably confusing. It's 1770s or something. 1762, maybe? Ah, oh, who cares? Um, <laughs> yeah, that's... A, yeah. Dates were never my strong point. It was 1992. Must have been 1792. <laughs> Um, 1792. All the good papers come in. Come in out 1792. In a, in a Must have been. Like, yeah, yes. yeah. In 1792. Um, anyway, um, the, the key point Fisher then didn't like about base. He he didn't disagree with most of the paper. He didn't like this setup for where the parameter of the distribution came because the parameter of the distribution was sampled from a probability distribution, mm -hmm. not a fixed thing. So the frequentist idea is you know the frequency of black and red balls in the bag. Yeah. Um, and that that's a fixed number, or it's a real number, whereas in Bayes, what you've got is a sort of a random distribution sampling. Now, Fisher wouldn't have any problem with that Bayes setup. That's actually what went on. But what he objected to was treating um, the parameters of a distribution, like a Gaussian, themselves as a random variable. And that's exactly what inverse probability did. Hmm. So you start with a sort of you want to know the mean of a distribution, and then in Bayesian inference, you start with a prior, which is your belief before you've seen data, mm -hmm. and then you have a likelihood, and then you combine the prior and the likelihood um, using something called multiplication, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and then and then there's a renormalization step to make it a probability distribution again, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it's simply it's just the product rule of probability. It's it's called Bayes' rule, but it's just the product rule of probability. It's 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 nothing fancy at all. Um, and then you get the so-called posterior distribution, which is the probability of the mean distribution given the data you've seen. And that's what Bayesians often look at. Now, what Fisher said is like, well, if you're trying to estimate someone's height and you make an individual's height then, mm -hmm. and you make an, a number of measurements of it, then there's only seeing one single value. It's not a stochastic variable and you shouldn't treat it as such. Um, and that's the sort of core of the controversy. So it's not the use of Bayes' rule he objected ah. to. Um, because that would just be objecting to maths, the right. product rule, be objecting to multiplication. You know, he was <laughs> sort of very, very intelligent, and he would have used Bayes' rule uh, an enormous amount. Um, he was objecting to the interpretation, the philosophical interpretation of a parameter which he considered to be a, a, a sort of determined value, a deterministic mm. value, mm -hmm. not a stochastic. So Bayesianism is, is in truth, it's the 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 use of stochasticity to represent your uncertainty about a deterministic value, Got it. which Fisher objected to, and I'm just doing all the time. You know, that's that's the kind of <laughs> what I'm doing. But I mean, the interesting thing about that is he was really objecting to the subjectivity as well that that introduces. So where does the prior come from, and all mm -hmm. this sort of thing? He was trying to do a objective analysis, like we were talking about in data science. Mm -hmm. I think today this is much less controversial. There's a lot more modeling goes on. There's a lot of subjectivity has to come in because those classical ideas that Fisher had were brilliant. They worked where they worked, and like all new ideas, you're just left with all the areas that they don't work. Mm -hmm. So you've got to wade into that long grass and and start working something else out. You know, and and they done all the good stuff so you know it doesn't work anymore that's why you're in the long grass right. see you, statisticians and machine learners and everyone ends up modeling again and i think that the argument's much less interesting than people make out so and i think in particular that the two are compatible what a frequentist will often do in statistics 
is they'll um, look at things like worst case analysis, worst case performance, because they're looking to provide guarantees, or they'll look at um, uh, sort of, uh, they'll sort of say, you know, these mini-max and uh, pack theorems can all be seen as uh, frequentist ideas. And often it's sort of like, well, what's the worst case thing? Or the properties of an estimator that's really key is mm -hmm. like, can I show that this estimate I'm making of um, the mean of this distribution will converge, um, you know, in the limit of infinite data? Or what's the rate of convergence of this estimate? And that's trying to be, you know, regardless of the model. Like, the, like underlying that estimator, you may have used a modeling framework, a probability distribution to construct that estimator, but the frequentist doesn't care about that. They're looking at the sort of like, give me the properties of the estimator. Give me some cost function that I've got to work against, and I'll try and tell you, you know, whether, how you'll perform. And that's totally not incompatible with the Bayesian approach because the Bayesian approach is much more like, well, I'm going to come up with a model of the way I think things happen, a probabilistic model. So I'm going to try and represent everything I care of as a probability distribution. And um, I'll combine them together using marginalization, Bayes' rule. I'll do maximum marginal likelihood instead of maximum likelihood. And I'll have some estimates. Now, that doesn't give me the decision that I want to make in mm. Bayes' you're often having a probability over the circumstances. So what's the probability it's going to rain tomorrow? Well, but that doesn't tell me whether I should go outside or that doesn't tell me the thing I'm interested in. The frequentist right. would, 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 would want to know about, like, what's the quality of that decision that you're going to make? So that can be done afterwards. And the, what a Bayesian does, and this is very, very important and must not be forgotten, is they separate that process into inference and decision. So mm. there's this um, this sort of doctrine of Bayesians is that if the probabilistic model they create is correct, is accurate, contains the true generating distribution within it, then you can do your modeling separate of your process of decision. Um, and the reason that's interesting is because decision is much harder to sort of talk about than in some sense than the modeling. See, you sort of, when you're being Bayesian, you, you believe that that's what you're doing and you say, I can punt on the decision till later. But actually, when you do introduce what your decision theoretic measure is, then a frequentist can analyze how well you're doing. Very mm. often, they can't analyze what you're doing because you've made it so complex that their analyses <laughs> fall apart. But um, it, it's, it's sort of philosophically a different thing, and the, the things are compatible. Um, but then there's a lot of confusion. I mean, some of the confusions occur because the maths that a frequentist will use often looks very similar uh, to the maths that a Bayesian will use. Mm. And that's because there's only a limited amount of math that works. So in terms of all the math you can do, there's only certain things you can do tractably, like quadratic forms, linear algebra. So this is a really confusing. It took me ages to sort of realize this, that you can look at the math that a frequentist is doing as a Bayesian, and then they'll give you their motivation, and you think you're totally wrong about what you're doing because, look, your math looks the same as mine, and, but all the decisions you're making about which math to do next are wrong. Mm. But that's because their motivation at the beginning was different. Mm -hmm. They weren't doing the same thing as you. you just have to, you're all traveling down the same road because either side of the road is wilderness, and you know, the road, even if it's not going in quite the right day, you end up on it, right. um, even if if your end objective is different. Um, like with kernel methods, that's very true. So kernel methods, these support vector machines, lots of overlapping maths with Gaussian process, but very often the philosophy of what they're doing, um, they're often doing worst case analysis. And so I, I always find it easy to describe a worst case analysis. It's like if I haven't, and this, this happens to us all, like if you have an instinct about a decision uh -huh. and then you ask, you know, you sort of represent it to your, your partner, you sort of say, um, 
I think it would be like a good idea to do X. Mm -hmm. And then your partner will say, are you sure? Um, that automatically switches you from an average case analysis to a worst case analysis. Right. Because you sort of, as soon as they go, are you sure? Well, of course you're not sure. You just thought right, that. Right. And you start thinking of all the things that could go wrong and think, well, now this feels like a really bad idea. <laughs> but probably your initial instincts, you were just assimilating everything and thinking that might be fun. You right. know, should we invite John and Bill over? No, you know, are you sure they won't argue? Well, now you've said it. I can't be sure they won't argue. Right. The worst case is they'll argue. We'll have a horrible time. Um, but on average, I thought it might be a nice idea. So <laughs> that's the sort of worst case versus, and, and very often because Bayesian uh, inference and averaging are going quite closely together, very often the sort of results you get from Bayes are sort of average case things if, if the model is correct. Of course, the model's never correct. So these two things can happily coexist. Mm. Um, and really, I've been really talking about things from a statistical perspective because it's strongly affected the way that uh, machine learning people look at these things, even though a lot of this baggage is historic, not really relevant for us mm. because uh, for us, we're very often um, just concerned with predictive outcome. And these are different just approaches to get predictive outcome, which you test empirically. Um, but there are things that slightly annoy me that um, uh, so um, people will say, oh, the reason I'm not Bayesian is because uh, then I'd have to choose a prior. But that's kind of a nonsensical thing to say because in, in Bayesian, you use a likelihood and a, and a prior together. And the frequentist is sort of saying, well, I've got my likelihood and now I'd have to choose a prior in addition. But the truth is that when you're modeling, the likelihood and the prior is just one choice together. You mm -hmm. know, the, the frequentist has to make a choice of likelihood. That's still subjectively adding things. The point is that afterwards their analysis will try and deal with that subjectivity and, and give them an objective analysis, whatever they can say about what they've done despite their subjectivity. And that's an important philosophical difference. It's not about whether you need a prior or not. I mean, uh, this is in my opinion, probably people would disagree, but, it's, but it, I think it just gets in the way for people to say that and it gets in the way of harmony because, oh, there's this difference, you need a prior, I didn't. No, if I view the whole thing as a subjective model, mm -hmm. I can, and then I say what my decision is gonna be, I can still get a frequentist to help me out and say, well, what's the quality of that analysis? Um, it, it, it requires hard math, and often it's not done because of that. But, but f I, don't, I don't really find, once you've accepted that someone's going to be subjective, I, I don't really have a um, problem with that. Now, I think what we should do next time is perhaps go in and, and how that feeds into machine learning, because really that's talking about statistics. Um, and there's a lot of interplay between statistics and machine learning, but I think that the way this pans out in... Um, uh, machine learning is different. Mm. Um, and I've already gone on far too long about, you know, the, the difference between these two things. I mean, my, me my message is, you know, we can, you know, we can live together in perfect harmony. Um, <laughs> there's no, there's no sort of, you know, um, there's clashes, there's difference in terminology, um, but the philosophy is slightly different and both things are valid. And I'll try and give an example next time about sort of what I, what I mean about where things, c the two different things can fail. Um, but I think I've probably already talked about that. I mean, actually, you could write books about it. People do, and maybe they shouldn't. Maybe we should just say, oh, look, you know, <laughs> this is just different approaches, and they're youthful in different places. And actually, at the moment, the people who are winning um, are just the people that get enormous amounts of data, very complex right. models, and just throw them at them. So, you know, maybe, maybe we should just... Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> we should just not worry too much about these things. Uh, I mean, we have to at some point, but, yeah. But not too much, not too much. Not too much. For more on Bayesians and frequentists, visit our website, thetalkingmachines.com.
This week's listener question on talking machines comes from Scott. I'm fairly new to machine learning, but from my experience, it seems that the majority of techniques are aimed at working with cross-sectional data, while there are relatively few for panel data. What I often encounter is that time-dependent data are transformed into features that allow one to maintain the cross-sectional nature of that data set. Are there other models and or research that you can point me to for handling panel data, in particular, binary classification? In the field of econometrics, this sort of problem would be likely addressed with a random or fixed effects model. Certainly, there must be some useful tools for this class of problem from the machine learning community. Thanks so much. So, Neil, do we have any advice? So that's interesting because we've got a question which is coming very much from econometrics terminology. I'm not an expert in econometrics, but let me try and Mm. decode what I understand by some of those terms. Um, So a cross-sectional data would be, as I think Scott suggested, the sort of thing we're often looking at in machine learning, where you perhaps have many uh, features about either a subject or multiple subjects. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, well, now let's, let's assume it's one subject and you've got many characteristics about them. And then I think Scott mentioned binary classification and you build a binary classifier. So uh, right. in an image, those features are the pixels in the image of that particular subject's face. But I guess in econometrics, one might be more interested in, um, uh, I don't know, predictive variables of some economic outcome. Um, which uh, all escape me what they might be at the moment. <laughs> I know, rates of inflation or something. Um, mm-hmm. Now, econometrics is actually also very concerned about causality. So I think that they have endogenous variables and exogenous variables, and they're very often interested mm. in um, which variables, and then uh, do they call it the response variable, which is the output, which variables are things that they can control to change things? Because econometrics, you're sort of looking to... And you're also looking at a large scale. The models, I think, are often explanatory. Now, the Mm. panel data description, I think we would call multivariate time series. So that would be Mm. a multivariate input. Now, multivariate time series. Now, um, so that might be like a video would be an example Ah. of something that I think you could think of. a bunch of variables changing across time. You have a bunch of variables changing across time. So I think... um, You've got cross-sectional data. A longitudinal study would be, I think, a single variable changing across time, and panel data, I mm, think, is mm-hmm, a bunch of variables. Mm-hmm. So the, there are techniques for that sort of data, but it's it, it, a lot of it depends on what sort of question Scott has in mind. So certainly people have techniques for trying to predict that type of data. So, you, you know, uh, you, a GAN would be a way of generating um, uh or you know, things I've worked on, latent variable models, would be a way of trying to generate a multivariate data point. So if it was um, a cross-sectional data, you could do that independently. And then what people do, um, both with latent variable models, or um, you could imagine doing, I'm guessing people have done this with GANs, you can put in time dependence. So um, the you can have the setup where the GAN at the next time point takes inputs from the GAN at the previous time point. Um, Mm. And if you do that in the hidden layer, that's like a recurrent neural network type structure. So in recurrent neural networks, they connect hidden layers together um, over time. And in latent variable models, we do the same thing. We have sort of probability distributions. um, And of course, these will be used in econometrics. So things like principal component analysis, I'm sure, are used in econometrics. 
Um, but you can do things like you can have versions of principal component analysis where the principal components evolve over time. Um, and the really interesting thing about the way things have gone with that is there's uh, two f ways you could compose those models. So you can think of this as model composition. One mm. is just by sticking such models together and then um, deterministic models together. Um, and so that would be the uh, sort of um, uh, non-stochastic approach. Um, and then using connections uh, between them, differentiating through them using the chain rule or using automatic differentiation. So that's the sort of thing you're doing in a recurrent neural network. In a um, uh, state space model, you're typically doing the same thing, but you're having a conditional probability distribution that allows you to evolve from one time point to another. And then you use Bayes' rule, as we were mm. just talking about. You don't have to be Bayesian to do it. You can do it without <laughs> being Bayesian. Uh, it's totally valid. Um, in fact, being Bayesian in that case would be putting uh, additional prior distributions over the, say, the principal components that were evolving, not just the latent variables. Um, now, where were we? He said, say, binary classification. So that mm -hmm. you, you can now start making models up. You can make up a recurrent neural network. I mean, a recurrent neural network can take as inputs and, and uh, uh, sort of high-dimensional inputs, and it can have an evolution uh, over time um, to create the output. So an LSTM or in those various different varieties um, can be used for that. A state space model, um, you can do the same thing. You could have variants of common filters where you have an output that is a, a, a binary output. Um, and that will work as well. I think the key difference is that in econometrics, then they would be looking to, for these models to be explanatory. So at the end of it, you would want to, you know, you can't go into the minister and say, look at my recurrent neural network, you know. Uh, right. And they say, okay, what should I do with the economy? Uh, well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> you, know you have to go into the, you, know, you go into the minister and you sort of say, well, these, uh, I don't know what ministers, uh, what do you, what's the American equivalent of America, the, the secretary of something? Uh, a secretary. Yeah, secretary. Yeah, a secretary yeah. of whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Secretary. Director of something or other. Director or, or whoever you're working with and say, hey, we should do this. We should, um, we should increase inflation. No, not increase inflation, increase uh, interest rates. <laughs> We should uh, decrease interest rates because we've shown in our models that this, this effect will happen. Um, mm -hmm. So they're trying to be explanatory and causal, and causal inference is a difficult thing. Right. Lots of interesting people look at it, and you can only do it in certain circumstances. And it's harder to do with these more complex state-space models. Um, linear ones may be okay, so maybe that binarized Kármán filter type model or route strong strevel smoother or switching state-space models. Maybe there's something there, but mm. as you make it a recurrent neural network, you're more focusing on the prediction, less about the explanation. And I think that that's where right. you would you would trip up. But yeah, there's a lot of techniques. I think one thing that happens now is the, the successful techniques so dominate texts that people don't even right. look at the other stuff people have done. I mean, almost everything people you could think of doing, people have probably looked at at one point. That's reasonably likely to be true. And maybe even as far back as like the 1960s or whatever. Um, it doesn't mean it's not worth trying and it doesn't mean you have to read everything before giving it a goal. Um, you know, just go ahead and try it. And, you know, um, because the reason it didn't work in the past is probably very different from why it might or right. might not work today. Um, so there might not there might not be a lot of being talked about this in, in current literature, but if you do some hunting around, lots of people have asked lots of questions in yeah. some form or another but it might be hard to find so again uh, mm -hmm. speaking to someone um 
about it can help. But also just diving in and giving it a go. I'm a great believer in that. Different people think yeah. in different ways. Some people, like with PhD students I've had, I've had ones that want to understand everything about a field before they start going forward. And, you know, they end up being slower starters, but when they get going, they're amazing. They just start churning stuff out. I was much more of the type that to understand something, you have to dive in and try it. Um, hmm. and, and then you can make naive errors and, and you mustn't get too discouraged if people knock you back. Um, just try and learn from it. Pick yourself up and uh, on you go again. Um, but And also, you know, don't, you know, um, certainly always be prepared to find out. I mean, the classic mm -hmm. one is uh, these David Mackay, Radford Neal, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. intellectually probably the two most outstanding giants of my time in the field. Um, they invented these sort of codes, these uh, low-density parity check codes, um, extraordinary near channel limit codes, extraordinary things, developed a decoder, um, did some background work and found out uh, um, a coding theory guy called Gallagher, who's uh, quite famous, uh, had, had already invented them, but never, I think, hadn't necessarily implemented the coder you know, a number of years before. And it happens to the very best of us. It, you know, mm. it, it, it doesn't matter because, the, you know, it was super important they did the work then because, you know, the codes, I think they're widely used now, um, super important codes, um, uh, you know, it was important that the work they did was done, but right. someone else had happened to have defined these codes before. Um, and sometimes when you rediscover something that's already been worked on previously, it gives it a, a new a new light. It, it, it opens it up further. Yeah, and I, I think there's, there is a bit of a game in the field of running around and finding the first time that someone said something. Um, Everybody wants to be the first person on the moon, but well, it's just they not possible. Be, there's this like retro historian effect, you know, where people want to rewrite history according to some single point of origin, the origin myth, like I don't know, mm -hmm. like Romulus and Remus finding Rome. I right. don't think they did. Right. You know, they just wrote a paper <laughs> about it. It wasn't implementable at the time. Uh, but then later, when someone actually built the city, you said, "Oh, look, there's this citation back uh, 500 years before." <laughs> Uh, we really Romulus think that Rome will exist at some point in the future. <laughs> yes, right. Yes, right. Hypothesized exactly. that Rome might be possible at one point and it would rule the Mediterranean. <laughs> Damn it! <God>. No. <laughs> you know, and actually, the things that were like that, ideas are of their time as well. You know, the success of an idea. Look at neural nets. It's you know, there's a load mm -hmm. of new stuff now, but the initial successful stuff was old. It was just re-implementation. Beautifully right. done, cleverly done, hard work. Don't take ever the credit away. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, fundamentally, well, who first set one might be able to do that? Well, Newton invented the chain rule. So, or maybe it was Leibniz. You know, there's another priority <laughs> yeah, argument. Right. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> we won't go there. Well, if you've got a question for Talking Machines about something that exists or you think might already exist, email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at T-L-K-N-G-M-C-H-N-S. Our guest on this episode of Talking Machines is Catherine Heller. She's an assistant professor at Duke University in the Department of Statistical Science and at the Center for Cognitive Neuroscience. And when we sat down with her, we asked her the first question we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? I was interested in, in computing and data analysis from very early on. I can actually data back to some time when I was in high school. Um, I took some early programming classes. And I think I became interested, honestly, because computers were something adults didn't really know about. Mm, <laughs> secret world. So, yeah, that's right. It's something I could have my little sort of teenage 
teenager control over and not be bothered by older people. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So um, where did you do, where did you do your PhD work? My PhD was at the Gatsby Computational Neuroscience Unit. Um, It's affiliated with University College London. Mm -hmm. And did you do a postdoc or did you go into industry at all? I actually did two postdocs. Um, The first postdoc was funded by the EPSRC in the UK. It was officially at the University of Cambridge. Um, And my second postdoc was funded by the NSF. It was an NSF postdoc fellowship and it was at MIT. Nice. And now you're at you're at Duke and running a little lab and all that good stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot of fun. So tell me about the questions that you're asking there. What are you really excited about these days? Um, so we do Bayesian statistical machine learning, uh, machine learning, and we apply it to a couple of different application areas. The f- one that I'm primarily working on right now is medicine. Mm-hmm. So um, we've applied um, longitudinal modeling. We've done joint longitudinal and point process modeling for chronic kidney disease, um, Mm. predicting the progression for patients um, using electronic medical records across the university once they hit um, a certain level of something called EGFR. So it's like an estimated measurement of how well their kidneys are functioning, Mm -hmm. like what the rest of their disease course is gonna look like and whether we think that they're gonna need to go on dialysis in the long run. And we've tried to do joint prediction of that and uh, whether there are other events that we're going to need to look out for. Like, are they going to be readmitted to the hospital? Um, Are they going to potentially suffer from cardiac events? That kind of thing. We've also looked at predicting surgical complications. Hmm. So so we've done some straight-up modeling, and we're working on um, some more complicated transfer learning methods, um, like Bayesian factor analysis methods, Um, for trying to uh, predict whether somebody going into surgery is likely to have a complication like a bleeding complication or urinary tract infection coming out of surgery. Um, We're also looking at using mobile technology for um, getting more data so we can do better prediction for some chronic diseases. Uh, For example, the one that I'm mainly focusing on is multiple sclerosis with the neurology department. So we're reaching the end of developing uh, an iPhone app to record different kinds of data. So for example, um, surveys that people fill out every once in a while, data that's collected via a fitness tracker, um, and data that's collected via like little tasks that you do on your iPhone. Um, and we're trying to use those in combination and potentially in combination with other things that are collected in clinic, like MRI uh, scans, in order to do prediction about what somebody's multiple sclerosis disease course is likely to be like, what the population or the subpopulations of multiple sclerosis are like. So, for example, for a particular symptom like fatigue, there might be a lot of reasons why you feel fatigued. Um, it could be that it's your MS. It could be that it's a drug that you're taking. Mm-hmm. It could be that you're just not getting enough sleep at night, right? And so we hope to be able to pull apart those different things to be able to decide on what treatment is going to be most effective for that particular patient. Those are the main projects I'm working on in healthcare right now. I'll stop there. No, no, that's amazing. <laughs> they they sound, um, they I mean, they sound absolutely revolutionary, especially for like direct patient um, quality of life applications. I think it's really important. I think you're going to see more and more of this going forward. It's it's almost sad, I think, how far the medical community lags behind other communities mm. like sports, which I think is 
not very meaningful, not to downplay sports, but like not very meaningful in comparison with medicine is just so much farther ahead in terms of the amount of data analysis that they do and in terms of their use of various kinds of statistical and machine learning methods in order to do prediction. Um, and I'm really, really excited about trying to get medicine to be a bit more advanced and to be able to leverage um, large data sets in order to make better inferences about the kinds of things that are going to affect people and the best decisions for them medically. Why do you think that is? I mean, um, I would have thought that the uh, medical profession, I mean, they produce so much quantities of data on like a daily basis that they would be running towards any form of analysis and any form of analysis that is easier on humans to, <laughs> to perform. Yeah, that's right. They do. Um, there's a ton of data in terms of uh, electronic medical records. There's a ton of data that can potentially get collected through all kinds of mobile devices and sensors. I, I, I think that um, in part it's been a cultural issue, right? Mm. Um, I think that physicians and clinicians they have another job to do, right? That's mm -hmm. not thinking about data. And so I think, unfortunately, it's maybe taken the community a while to sort of warm up to the idea that this is something that can be done and it's something that they can incorporate into their day-to-day -day routine. So, so looking at the types of data that you're looking at, kidney failure, MS, um, these are very different types of, of diseases in terms of symptomatic expression and so on. What are the commonalities in medical data that you see? Um, there's a lot of l longitudinal modeling. There's a lot of modeling uh, the progression of things over time, right? So you can have a particular disease. The disease tend to ha tend tends to have a particular disease course, or it, it might have a bunch of subtypes of people with particular disease courses. Um, and that's something that we are, are looking to model, and we should be able to model for all kinds of subtypes of the disease. Um, and then I think probably the most important thing is then looking for each of these subtypes given their disease course and trying to say, okay, what can we actually do about this, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. What kind of interventions can we make that are effective for people in different situations? And um, we're at the point right now with a lot of these studies where we're really starting to pilot them and to check out. The prediction works works pretty well, right? Where we can say here, look, we can predict for a particular patient. This is what they're likely to experience. But what you know, what we're starting to pilot is looking at different kinds of interventions that are made by physicians, right? Like this is only like a guidance for the physician that are made by physicians, um, looking at the different interventions and seeing what's effective one. And hopefully from that, we can learn how to treat people better for the particular disease that they have. So being able to make recommendations to the physicians about possible interventions that might be particularly effective at this right. moment that they might not right. see themselves. Right. That's incredible. I, how, I mean, this sounds like it could, <laughs> could revolutionize the way that people practice medicine. We're hoping. We're hoping that's true. <laughs> so where else are you, looking, are you interested in applying this? Um, uh, other, other chronic diseases? Or, or is there a, um, a possible application, do you think, for acute issues? Um, so in terms of in terms of medical issues, there there are obviously tons tons of places to to apply this kind of work, um, and I think there are a lot of people who are interested in getting into this getting into this field. And there's just more. I mean, even when I look at Duke Hospital, there are more people who are interested in collaborating with me than I could possibly collaborate with. I mean, <laughs> the projects I didn't mention, right? Uh, 
uh, congestive heart failure, sepsis prediction. I could go on and on and on, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. some of them are financially more lucrative for the hospital as a business, mm-hmm. and some of them are just important for people in terms of like improving their day-to-day quality of life, but they're they're all important. And it's much more than I myself can do. And so I'm really hoping that more people get into this area and that we see more research going on because it is such an important area and because I think we can make such a large impact on how people help people's medical lives, mm-hmm. um, how people's medical lives are. So you've got more more collaboration requests than you could possibly handle. Yeah, yeah. Do you think, and I think there's a, been a huge uptick in the last couple of years um, in interest about biological data sets. Do you think we'll see more people from ML move into working on medical questions or more people from the medical field interested in learning some ML skill set? I mean, hopefully both. I think it's, I I don't want to sound in any way arrogant about my background, but I think that it takes a really long time to accumulate the mathematical background and statistical tool set that Mm -hmm. you need in order to really do a great job of looking at a particular problem and saying, okay, this is what I think needs to be applied here. And people who, the nice thing about people who do sophisticated methodology is that they know when to do simpler methodology if that's actually needed to make progress mm-hmm. about uh, like on a particular on a particular application data set. I think you know hopefully I, I've become a r- really big supporter of the idea that the amount of statistical education in medicine needs to improve, and I mm-hmm. think it's important not because I expect clinicians ever to do like data analysis themselves, but clinicians are uniformly going to have to understand what's going on when they see the output of the predi- prediction, and they're going to have to and they're going to be able to make better judgments if they know how how basically what they're seeing is mm-hmm, working, mm-hmm. right? And so like on a case by case basis, they might be able to say, okay, you know, I know that I'm seeing this prediction for this particular patient, but I don't think that this patient really falls within the regime of what this algorithm was really really created to do. And they're only going to be able to say that if they get the education to have a basic understanding of of um, the base, the kinds of things that we do. Mm-hmm. So in, in order to able the, to make those sort of co-decision areas not just be informed by what the algorithm is telling them, but actually push back on it or provide more context, they need some basic understanding of what's happening. Yeah, what's both. Both. They need it to like understand like what's being presented to them, but then also to think critically about it and to understand like why it may or may not apply to a particular patient. Um, so I'd really like to see more um, more basic statistics, more computing integrated into a medical school kind of curriculum. Mm-hmm. So tell me more about the mobile data collection idea. I think that's really amazing. Where did that come from? Where are you hoping to go with it? You're just starting the study on MS with the with the app, yes? Yeah, that's right. Um, so we're just reaching the reaching the stage where we're completing. Um, completing uh, the development of this of this iPhone app using ResearchKit. Um, and if this wasn't a radio program, I would show you a demo of we'll this particular app. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's really, I mean, it's really impressive and I think it's going to be great. And I think it's going to be great for patients with multiple sclerosis, both to affect their patient care, right? Because it mm. creates reports that they can then take and show to their doctor. And hopefully it will do a much better job of summarizing what they've been experiencing in the intermittent period between clinic visits. Mm-hmm. Um, but it will also collect data for us 
us, which we can hopefully leverage across lots and lots of people to learn more about the disease and, again, what different treatments might be effective in different situations. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm super excited about that. I think mobile technology and mobile sensors have great promise in terms of, um, in terms of advancing medicine. Um, there are things that we'd like to do that we don't really have the sensor technology to do right now. Mm -hmm. We'd like to be able to measure, for example, somebody's body temperature who has multiple sclerosis because um, there's something called Dutas phenomenon where if a patient with multiple sclerosis gets too hot, then they can re-experience some, the, some of the symptoms that they've had in the past. Wow. Um, and so if we see somebody's body temperature climbing, we could be like, warning, <laughs> you know, you're about to hit your threshold, you know, try to cool down yeah. instead of like continuing your run or, right, right. you know, whatever. Um, and so that's the direction in which I see this going, right? You could also think about integrating it uh, into, for example, like somebody's home, right? Like, okay, I'm going to turn up your air conditioning in your house. So when you get back, like you're going to cool down much more quickly mm -hmm. and that kind of a thing. Um, and I think we'll be successful with that in the long run. Um, I'm collaborating with a neurologist and I'm a specialist right now at Duke, uh, at Duke university. His name is Lee Hartzell. And I, you know, basically I, I think part of the initiation for this for this idea really came from him and his drive to see mobile technology incorporated to a larger extent into his patient population. Mm. So this study is going to be launched at Duke for his patient population? Yeah, so we'll launch the study um, for the population in the clinic at Duke. Um, there's also another study that goes on in, in North Carolina called the Murdoch study, um, and there's an MS cohort there, and we'll also recruit people from um, the MS cohort of that of that study, but we'll also release the app on the App Store so that anybody with MS can download it, and hopefully, like, we'll get. I mean, that will allow us just to get like an enormous amount of data, which will be really beneficial to us. That's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. Do you have a? Do you on the horizon? Do you have another disease? Uh, that you feel like would be really uh, helped by having a mobile intervention for data collection? So we've talked a little bit to the neurology department actually about doing this for all neurological disease, staying Whoa. in the field of neurology, right? Yeah. So, um, so our app is called MS Mosaic. Um, and you could think about having a stroke mosaic and an Alzheimer's mosaic mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. app, right, where you're basically collecting data and symptoms, symptoms and um, activity data and task data for each of these. Um, right now, there's um, there's an app for Parkinson's disease, Parkinson's disease um, called the Empower app. Um, that, that looks at some of this. They look at things like voice tremors. Um, so it's, I mean, again, it's very early stages, but I think it would be beneficial for a lot of disease. And then that's not to mention like chronic diseases. I think basically any chronic disease, right, would benefit from this kind of um, mobile, mobile technology and data collection me mechanism. Um, but um, there's a researcher at Duke um, whose name is Nirma Shah, who's in pediatrics and looking at, um, using mobile technology to, um, to, to monitor the pain levels of patients with sickle cell, cell anemia, wow. right? So even something like completely different. And again, like I'm really interested in the data end of this, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. once we've collected like this large amount of data from any mobile device, how do we then 
um, use sophisticated data analysis techniques in order to draw conclusions that can be helpful to patients. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, I mean, this seems a little different than the other medical data sets that I know of. You are basically able to start fresh and like ask all the questions that you want to ask as opposed to being presented with, I don't know, 25 years of whatever the physicians have been collecting about their patients. Yeah, that's right. So that's right. So, so we're, we're trying to think a lot about the data, um, the data that we're collecting via the mobile devices. Um, the electronic medical record is kind of what it is, right? You get the data. Um, it, people complain about it being very noisy um, and hard to clean and things like that, and that's all true. But actually, probably my biggest problem with electronic medical record data is the data that's just not there at mm. all, right? Because there's nothing you can do about that. You can't go right. back 20 years of time and collect in time and collect data right. that like nobody bothered to write down. Um, and so I think, you know, if I could take the chair of every department of every department in the medical school at Duke into a room like the you know, the thing I would really try to hammer home is that like they really need to think about the data that they're collecting and the data that they're putting into the electronic medical record because we're never going to be able to go back in time and recollect right. it. Yeah. How helpful it would be if they had some exposure to statistics yeah. when thinking exactly. about what information they were exactly. collecting. Exactly. It's super important. It's just super, super important. Um, but right now, you know, I get I get a lot of complaints about like, oh, the electronic medical record system itself is new. We just started using a computer, right? right. Like, give right. us time to adjust to this. Right. And you know, I'm very, I'm very uh, antsy, right? So I'm like, no, no, you've <laughs> got to do it now. <laughs> it's really important, really. Right. Yeah, definitely. So, do you have any particular strategies that you feel work well for working with this um, uh, medical data, which I can only assume is really high dimensional and and pretty gritty and, and hard to deal with when you when you get it initially. Do you have any systems that you like? Um, do you mean, uh, so we're really right now kind of doing different things. For a, a lot of the longitudinal modeling, we're using Gaussian processes um, in, in part in order to do the longitudinal modeling, um, p various point process models um, to look at adverse events. Um, we even do stuff like simple sparse logistic regression in order to do sort of like binary classification for, you know, do we think this person is going to have a surgical complication or not? Mm -hmm. um, I think there's like a lot of Bayesian parametrics that we can do down the line in order to say like cluster people into different groups. Um, but it's really, um, it's really early days. We're looking at factor modeling in order to tr do transfer learning. So, Another problem that we run into a fair amount is that uh, sometimes there are like these national databases where we have um, data that's been collected from a whole bunch of different hospitals and then we know what our contribution at Duke is. Um, and so we'd like to be able to leverage this national data in order to make better predictions for patients at Duke. But of course, like the Duke collected data is going to be more informative about what somebody's outcome is going right. to be like at Duke than the national data data set as a whole, right? So how do you balance those two things? Mm -hmm. Like, what's the trade-off like? And so we've looked at um, Bayesian statistical factor analysis kinds of methods or factor models. Um, in order to do that, that's work in progress. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of interesting modeling and modeling techniques um, that I think can be employed. 
I mean, it even bridges into social networks. So I've I collaborated with somebody at UNC um, who's an epidemiologist. Her name is Allison Aiello. Um, and uh, basically she worked with um, students in student dorms um, at the University of Michigan in order to like track the flu mm. um, over the course of like a flu season, right? Where students were given like mobile apps and those mobile apps basically allowed um, for the monitoring of the students' locations, who they interacted with, that kind of thing. And then looking at everybody's symptoms and like what their interactions are like, we can predict whether you're likely to get wow. the flu or not. And so hopefully down the line, um, you know, so she looked specifically at um, an intervention of like, if we have a student then like who's starting to get sick, isolated in the dorm room, mm -hmm. can we, you know, slow the, slow, slow the spread of the flu? Um, but we just looked at the prediction aspect, like, can we actually do the prediction of whether or not you're likely to get sick? What kinds of other covariates correspond to um, increasing your likelihood of getting sick? So we found that things like drinking more alcohol or um, getting poor sleep actually increased your chances of getting sick and lengthened your recovery time. So, so being that was in college cool. was a... Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, yeah, that's right. I mean. <laughs> being in college, not great in terms of getting sick. Okay. <laughs> Catherine Heller, assistant professor at Duke University. I think her perspective into, into the world of biology and health is just amazing. And I'm really excited to see what comes out of her work. Yeah, I think it's so, um, well, Duke's a great place to be doing that type of work yeah. as well. And, and actually, Catherine's a, one of those examples. She started in machine learning. She's moved into stats. She's crossing over into, this is the sort of people we want, uh, you know, bringing all the different ideas together because those challenges in health and biology are so difficult. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's it for us on this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode.